Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 414 with Gretchen Anderson. We are talking about shifting cultures, how it's done, and Gretchen comes at it with a boatload of data research-based insights. So you'll learn, one, the four elements critical to a work culture, two, the role of the critical few in an organization, and three, how to leverage the behavior you already have for the better. So if you want to check out the show notes, the transcript, or the links to albums you've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep414. And here's Gretchen's story. Gretchen Anderson is a director of the Cats and Back Center, who's been working with client teams across the globe for over 15 years. Gretchen has a doctorate in literature from Stanford University and currently lives in Baltimore, Maryland with her two children, Jane and Calvin. Her new book is called The Critical Few, Energize Your Company's Culture by Choosing What Really Matters. So thanks to Gretchen for spending some time with us and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Here is Gretchen. Gretchen, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Hey, how are you, Pete? Oh, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I think we're having a good time here. Great. I'm really looking forward to it. Well, I'd love to get your take. First of all, it seems like we've got something in common. You and I both listen to podcasts while falling asleep. I want to hear all about this habit of yours in terms of what you're listening to. How do you do it with like what is actually stuck in your ears? Yes. For a while, I was really into these headphones called sleep phones, and they had a great pajamas for the ears. Oh, that is nice. (laughs) Which I love that name. But then I actually just discovered I could put my iPhone under my pillow and I just let it play. Okay. That's great. Yep. So what about you? What do you do? I think I've got something called cozy phones, which sounds similar. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And you've got sleep phones. Yes. I used to like listen to strange recordings like in the days before podcasts. And then I would get sick of them. But there's some sort of perfect middle of the Venn diagram of it has to be interesting enough that it distracts me from my own thoughts, but boring enough that it doesn't keep me awake. So obviously, Pete, Awesome at my job is never going to be in that category. (laughs) You know just what to say. But also I like that the voice is familiar. Sometimes I'll listen to things on like linguistics, you know, topics that are sort of like adjacent to mine and that I find interesting, 
but are not directly relevant or else my mind will still want to pay attention. Yeah. Well, I'm intrigued by the sleep phones. I've been using cozy phones, which are nice, but they have a cord. And I see the sleep phones are, are wireless. Thanks for the tip. I can get uh, wireless there. I'd like to also listen to uh, podcasts or Blinkist, which has audiobook summaries. They're a sponsor. Thanks, Blinkist, of the show. Or sometimes like a, a TED Talk, just the audio. Because that's stimulating. You go, oh, okay. And then once one goes, you're like, okay, that's about the right amount of time. I'm, I'll be asleep now. For me, if it has a dot of music, it like wakes me up like a bowl <laughs> of water. Yeah. Honestly, the production values can't be too high because mm-hmm. like I can't have music. Okay. Yeah. Well, well, thank you for digging into that element. And uh, you've already educated me with something that uh, could be transformational. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm glad. And everyone will be awesomer at their job if they get a good night's sleep. I'm right with you on there. Can you orient us a little bit? So you're a director at the Cats and Back Center, and you do a lot of work associated with uh, company culture and and simplifying that. Can you orient us to what do you do and, and why does that get you jazzed? Yeah, so I run a center, I run a knowledge center within a large consulting firm. I work within PwC and I run a center with a team that is the firm's kind of incubation engine on topics around culture and leadership and motivation and performance. I like all those things. Yeah, it's really fun. So I get to have, we do research, we write, we have articles, we publish this book that we'll be talking about today, and we get to take this very cross-industry cross the globe view. You know, PwC is is a very, very large global firm and we get to be part of conversations about how ideas and theories about how culture works in a business context are happening literally everywhere. So it's it's really fun. We get to see what's kind of what's kind of universal. What's the common X factor that's going to help both a local green construction firm in Baltimore and a giant global technology firm? What's going to ring true for leaders at both of those organizations? And that's the really fun part about my job. That is interesting. Yes. You share some of your learnings in your book, The Critical Few. What's the main message of the book? So the main message of the book is that culture, just like your strategy and your operating model, can and should be considered as absolutely a problem and an issue and an opportunity that gets leaders out of bed every day. That motivational piece of the business, if tapped and cultivated, can be a source of positive energy for whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish. Positive energy. I like that. Well, could you maybe give us a picture of that in terms of maybe it's a case study or a story or example of an organization that went from not so energized to, wow, uh, this is great. We ground the book within a fictional case study about a CEO who we call Alex. And we did this in part because Culture is such an intimate topic for so many organizations. So the book is the story of we very much a composite of all the companies we've ever worked with. And it's the story of a fictional company who has a CEO who's come in. It's kind of a company in retail. They've got a lot of things going for them, but a lot of things are tough. And by working with this leader, we're able to help him understand that working within and through the culture and the motivations that people have, he's able to get the best out of that business. 
could you maybe orient us to, you know, what's it look like when it's not at its best in terms of the, the energy and the vibe amongst the people in terms of like the daily grind uh, versus the, the happy place uh, toward the end? Yeah. So I would say the real switch is that people within an organization before they begin kind of an evolution on culture that's kind of purposeful and kind of critical few-ish in the way that we describe in the book. At the beginning, they're thinking about culture as something that's standing in the way of getting work done in the way that they want to get work done. It's the thing that people throw their hands in the air and say, it's the culture, what are we going to do? Or I would love to get this done, or this keeps happening and it seems like it's the culture. So it goes from being something that they feel out of their control and kind of obtrusive and causing kind of drag to at the end of the book, they feel like there are specific things that they recognize what their culture is. They see it sort of core traits of who they are. They see how they came to be that way over time and how they're not going to change them quickly. And they also understand that by being really precise about the behaviors that more people could do more of every day, by being really precise and really descriptive, by motivating and rewarding when people do those few behaviors, they're able to start seeing them self-reinforce. They're able to see, start see them virally spreading. The book ends with a, a scene in a retail store where the CEO and one of his board members literally like watch a guy not knowing he's being observed, you know, helping a customer in a way that he wouldn't before and sort of attaching that to understanding that he's part of this new shift in the culture and the direction. When we say, hey, it's the culture and it's out of control and it's drag, can you give us some examples of particular issues or complaints that folks would affix to that? It's the culture, it's out of control and it's a drag. It is what it is. We hear companies talk about this all the time, and these are going to be really familiar to you and your listeners. They're going to be, we spend too much time in meetings and nothing ever gets done. They're going to be things like, we are drowning in a situation where decisions can't be made without consensus. It could be the way that things are drawn on paper. Nobody follows those processes. Everybody bends the rules. You know, it could be all sorts of things. Okay. I'd love to hear then sort of what are the four critical elements that uh, you zero in on? If I had to sketch the whole thing out for you, it sort of is a the overall message of the book and of our approach is you have to be very comprehensive in how you think about what a culture is, but you also have to be willing to just start by looking at a piece of it and focusing in there. So culture is a kind of ecosystem that includes how people behave and how they feel, their emotional energy, their mindsets. It also includes specifically how they behave and show up to work together. You, however, you can't influence people's mental states because they're private, because I can't tell when they're changing. But what you can do is you can be very specific about behaviors. So we talk about behaviors as a point of entry. And we also say the culture of an organization as it exists today is where you need to start from. So if you were to say to me, I want to build a culture that looks like the culture of this wonderful restaurant down the street, or I want to build the culture of that technology company that everybody always talks about, I would say, you know what, Pete, the culture of your organization 
grew up to be that culture for a reason, and it supported the way that business has gotten done to date. So let's figure out where you start from, and then we'll figure out where you're trying to get to next. So to Mm -hmm. bring it back to those four elements, so that's how we talk about that first element of the theory is this idea that every organization has a critical few traits. We've all got the name of the same business on our business card, and we all show up and work here, and we're part of this ecosystem. We're going to share some family resemblance things in common. And those might be things like a relationship orientation, or they might be things like a focus on metrics, or faith in our leader, or there are a set of characteristics that if you met somebody you'd never met before, but they both worked in the same company, you're going to presume that they share. And importantly, each one of those traits is going to have ways that they're supporting you getting work done and ways that they're hurting the work that you need to get done. There's this notion that there are critical traits and all of those traits have ways that they're helping and hurting and you can't change them quickly. So what you might as well do is figure out how to work within them to get more of what you need. Now, when you talk about these traits, mm-hmm. do you have sort of a, a master a menu, if you mm. will? So I guess when you think of culture, sometimes we could think about particular continua or, or dichotomies like, oh, it's very relationship-oriented uh, versus process-oriented. And so, Yep, it's always a tension, right? Because have you ever talked to any organization that is purely one or the other, right? Right. It's interesting. We started thinking this way about traits seven or eight years ago. And at that time, we kind of purpose built them every time. You know, we did a lot of interviews and kind of hypothesis by hypothesis sort of built up. You know, what do we think these traits are after every, you know, we'd have a lot, a lot of conversations. Then we started to realize some of these traits seem original to a company, but then there's a lot of ones that we kept seeing over time. So we've built a survey-based tool to kind of pull those out. And that survey-based tool is definitely on kind of a poll of like our decisions made in this organization by consensus or our decisions made by a single point of accountability. Do I feel I'm rewarded only for the financial metrics I deliver or do I feel that there are a broader set of points on which I'm evaluated. Very few organizations are going to fall far to the left or fall to the right. There's definitely like a kind of spectrum quality to where organizations show up. I love it. You know, when you get really specific that way in terms of, hey, decisions can go one way or the other and and sort of somewhere along the lines and then Mm -hmm. uh, how you get rewarded also. Could you unpack a few more of those dimensions? Yeah, sure. So we also think about, is it very hierarchical or is it very flat? we think about, do things follow the org chart or is everything very loose and informal? You know, it's those kinds of like, really, like, where are the polls? And another thing that's really cool that doing this survey over time, we also do, I mentioned we do research at the Katzimax Center. We do longitudinally, every couple of years, we run a survey across organizations that mainly have been our clients because we, I mean, basically because we have their emails, right? But 2000, people in 50 countries responded to our last survey. So we get a pretty global and kind of cross-industry perspective on how people view these kinds of things as well, right? And Mm -hmm. we actually, we asked some of those questions and then mapped them to the industries that they answered. So we're even being able to start to say, these are the kinds of traits that show up in particular industries. So we are saying, yes, every organization kind of has its individual thumbprint 
by taking such a close look at each organization, not against some external framework, but sort of in a very intrinsic, take it in its own terms way. But by mapping that over time and looking across a lot of organizations, we're able to see some trends that don't mean, oh, we're measuring you against our scorecard. They're very much built on the organization's own responses. Does that make sense? You're kind of wonky like me, I can tell. You're asking me very detailed questions. Well, because I think the word culture can be a little fuzzy for some. For sure. In terms, and so it's the way we do things around here. You know, it's like the yeah. vibe, it's the feel, Gretchen. And yep. so so I think the more that, that we make it all the more precise is like, what I mean by culture is, you know, when you make decisions, is it more like this or more like that? When people are rewarded, is it more for this or more for that? So if you have any more kind of extremes or ends of, of continua, I'd love to hear them. Yeah, well, so some of the things that we've we've had a chance to see, um, one thing, and it actually has come up in a couple of different sources recently. Let's talk about the spectrum of how we're rewarded, right? Like, am I, Gretchen Anderson, rewarded as a individual within my company? Do I feel like it's just going to be metrics I'm sorry, do I feel like it's just going to be financial metrics or do I feel like they're also going to be sort of, you know, how I made the people on my team feel in a sort of broader set of metrics? We did a regression analysis against the 2000 respondents. A guy in our network said, you know, it would be really interesting to take that data, do a regression analysis against how proud I feel to work where I work. Mm. And the highest correlation in any of those scores and questions we asked, the highest correlation was are my metrics broad, right? And that I thought that was really nice, right? Because I sort of know that intuitively, right? Like it feels better to me as an individual to feel as if my whole self, you know, like how I mentor our people, it, it feels good to me as an individual to feel as if a broad set of metrics are applied to my performance than just one specific one. But I really liked that our data, because we didn't ask, do you feel proud about your, you know, do your metrics make you feel good or whatever? We actually just did that correlation. So that was really nice. And then similarly, PwC has done a survey outside of the Katzenbeck Center, a survey called Digital IQ. Um, and they did an external analysis based on market data of companies that are most innovative in a digital space, like highest digital innovation that they looked at externally rather than by asking them, are you digitally innovative? You know, it was like a set of external market criteria and then found that broader performance metrics tended to correlate as well to higher digital innovation. So I thought that was cool, you know, because I try to take a point of view on culture. We try within the Katzenbeck Center to say we're not saying any kind of culture is all good or all bad. And we're not saying, look, here's our scorecard of good culture. Take the survey. Uh-oh, you only got an eight. You know, like that is not what we're doing at all. Um, we're really trying to take every organization on its own terms and encourage them. And this is very much what the book is about. We're encouraging every organization to like look within figure out what you're best at and try to do more of it, right? Rather than apply some external measure. But then the nice part is that over time and being very deliberative in this space, we're able to start to actually say, you know, there are some things that we do see and believe really drive the kind of motivation that feels like everybody wants more of. Let's hear some of those. What are some of the things everybody wants more of? What everybody wants is culture that's aligned with what the business is trying to do. We argue the goal should be for if you are trying to do the hard caloric work of evolving your culture, that is about trying to find ways to make sure that individuals working within your company feel there is an alignment between 
the kind of messages I'm getting and the kind of what I'm rewarded for and all of those things feel coherent for me with what I need to do to help this company perform. In our mind, when we're saying you want to work on your culture, we're saying that should be your goal. Oh, very nice. And and so then that's that's rather thoughtful then in terms of making sure you have that alignment as opposed yeah. to, for instance, I think, let's say innovation. Hey, we want to be more innovative. We want to have more ideas. Right. We want to make them happen. But there are sort of behaviors and rewards and bonuses that are tied to like never being wrong, for example. Mm-hmm. It, it's, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, well, well, there you go. You know, I, I mm-hmm. feel kind of you know, disjointed, you know, being here and it's, and it's not so fun. Like, am I mm-hmm. supposed to uh, come up with wild ideas, which may or may not work? Or am I supposed to just sort of do the thing that, you know, we all know works and which would not be innovative. So that, that's nifty. So then oh, I'd love to hear then, how do you zero in on particular behaviors? Could you give us some examples of behaviors you might zero in on to support something and how you would get those reinforced? Yeah. So the idea is that those behaviors need to be not chosen at random, but what they need to be is they need to be a bridge between what we understand the culture to be today and where we're trying to get to. So let me explain it in the context of, I've currently been having conversations. A wonderful guy reached out to me who's running a green construction firm in Baltimore. And he's very much talking about in this world that I'm in, how do I get everybody in my office from the back office staff to the frontline people to be all more customer focused, even if they're not like dealing with customers every day. And we did this really fun workshop with them around, you know, given these kind of core traits of who we are, the sort of pride in our business, this sort of attachment to our leader and his vision and these traits of who we are, team oriented, safe and careful, what would customer service behaviors look like that would be grounded in the way we are today, you know, that we all agree would help us kind of outperform our peers in the market on the dimension of customer service. But what might behaviors be? They talked about having, like, might a behavior be a dress code? Might we have a consistency of style and dress that would mark us as part of this company, that would be appealing? We actually had a wonderful conversation about One of the core traits that had come out in this company was a real organization-wide autonomy was valued. So we had this amazing conversation about what might a behavior be of how we understand how to dress for work that would respect that autonomy trait, right? Like we can't roll something out organization-wide and make it really sound like a heavy new policy without it being tissue rejected by an organization in which people feel like they should be able to make autonomous decisions every day. And again, none of this is magic, but what I'm trying to sketch and show was that by having these conversations in the ways that were grounded in the concepts that we talk about in the book, it kind of framed the right conversations such that they were able to talk about behaviors in a way that felt very realistic and practical and approachable and real. Gotcha. And so what are they going to do? Yeah. Well, what they also decided to do, and this is another really core part of the theory, is they are going to work with the people in the organization to figure out the right answer. They're going to work with the people in the organization. We call them 
the critical few people, these are the authentic informal leaders who know, have a finger on the pulse of how everybody thinks and behaves there, who sort of intuitively know what the kind of emotional triggers are going to be for people. And the leader there has decided to name a couple of those authentic informal leaders, sort of put the case to them. You know, and again, that's again to go all the way back to this overarching theory that the best that you have in your organization is already inside of it. A lot of times you need to guide an organization to understand that the answer isn't going to come from something external, but from paying attention to the voices of the people inside. Understood. As you're going about doing all of this, you know, are there any particular tips, tricks, do's, don'ts, key things you find yourself saying frequently as you're making it happen? Yeah, absolutely. One of a big one is it's much easier to act your way into new ways of thinking than it is to think your way into new ways of acting. And that's from an author named Jerry Steinem who wrote a book called The Power of Positive Deviance. And we love that quote. This is about a sort of behaviors first approach to making things happen. And could you give us a couple examples of behaviors that have just been transformational, you know, in terms of you've identified this is the thing we're really going to do and reinforce that just had powerful ripples for organizations? Yeah, I could, but I want to pick on that question a little bit because I think innate to this idea is that when the things I describe, there isn't a behavior that is so magical that every organization could pick it up and apply it. You know, they're usually kind of like, it's an adjustment from like, here's what we're doing today and here's how it could happen better. So it might be walk the front line and talk to folks every day and listen to what they say. Or it might be send every meeting invitation being very specific about what the outcomes of the meeting will be. It's that there's been energy behind that particular behavior. And we've kind of agreed that if we commit to it collectively, it's going to help us get somewhere rather than that there's a, you know, I wish there was. If I could change every organization by saying there is a behavior, you know, and that behavior is hugging. (laughs) Like, I would love to say that there is some universal solution or some behavior, but, but it's amazing. It's usually the behaviors that organizations come to. It's very important that they come to that consensus and that they describe those behaviors in language that makes sense to them. But it's actually kind of hard to pull them out and show why they matter because it's such an intimate answer. I can understand that how for different organizations that, for example, the email meeting requests that are very specific on the outcome. Would you adopt that behavior? Some groups would say, yes, what a breath of fresh air. That's what we need so badly because we just meander all over the place and we waste all this time. Others would say, well, duh, that's how we've always done every meeting everywhere, every time. So there's not really a a change or a, a gain to be made. And others would say, well, why do we need that at all? It's self-evident. You know, we all yeah. know what we're trying to do here. We're just two or three folks get together and we, we chat about, you know, how to bang out the widget better. <laughs> you know, it, yeah. it's, it's not that complicated. We don't really need, need to do that. So I, I hear you that different behaviors will be the potent leverage prescription for different organizations. And so in, in terms of how you zero in on what's the thing for a given organization is it, it sounds like you identify the traits that you that you really want. And then you, uh, you talk to the people who are influential and have their finger on the pulse and are emotionally intuitive and, and with it, with folks to see what, what they're hearing and what they think would resonate. And are there any other sort of key practices to, to surface what might the kind of highly leveraged behavior be? 
Yeah, absolutely. But let me make a small correction on what you're saying. What you do is you leverage in not necessarily in the traits you really want, but the traits you really have. And no, that sounds like such a small distinction, but it really is about you have your aspiration of where you're trying to get to, but the important part is you're trying to ground it in a just where we are today that's realistic. Then you understand what we have. You understand what you're trying to get to, whether that's customer centricity in my example, or in a highly siloed healthcare organization we were working with recently, we understood that to be collaboration. That was the strategic aspiration that we needed. But then the really critical thing to do as well is this notion of you choose what you're going to measure and why, and you resist the temptation and the impulse to try to find a comprehensive set of metrics that will measure everything. And instead, you say, when things start to change and feel different around here, where will we actually see that difference? And how do we make sure we really pay attention to that and kind of drop a thermometer there such that we're able to really get beyond people's natural cynicism that culture can't change, demonstrate, look, we said up front there would be this proof point and we have it. And use that measurement and the reporting of that measurement to be the energy that helps people move forward and move on. And could you give us some examples of measures? Such, so for example, collaboration, how, what kind of numbers might you put on that? Well, there actually was a really cool example from our own firm. We did in the Canadian firm within PwC, they did an organizational network analysis and everyone sort of took it as a, you know, this sounds correct that we're constantly asking partners in a professional services firm to collaborate with other partners outside of their business area, Mm -hmm. right? Like that sounds like a good idea, but they did an organizational network analysis to figure out who sort of had the densest networks and whose networks stretched across, you know, if I'm a partner in financial services, how well connected I am to partners in other parts of the business. And they were actually able to correlate revenue per account to partners that had the most, the strongest relationship networks outside of their immediate area. What a beautiful way to kind of specifically encourage a behavior to say, let's look at this behavior. Let's measure how the networks map to this and let's um, and let's actually track it to revenue. When actual business results can be tracked to something that we're trying to encourage, that's always really, really beautiful. It's rare and wonderful when you can come up with one kind of very clear metric like that. Usually we say, find every point at which, you know, how many people show up for the program, Do we see an increase in engagement scores around particular issues? You know, we're looking for what are the things that you measure already and where can we see some kind of lift there? Well, so so it's nice, certainly, when you see, hey, we, we want collaboration and we've got a nice proof point. Hey, look at this correlation. Partners who are well-connected with all sorts of, of different areas are having higher revenue per account, which makes sense because they're able to recommend cool stuff to their relationships at the accounts. And so then what is the behavior that uh, you want folks to do more of when it comes to bringing more collaboration? Well, within that example with the partners, I would probably say if we want to figure that out, I would want to kind of trail the partners who are doing it well. I would want to trail them and say, are you flying to different client cities and setting up dinners with partners who you don't often see, even if you're not on a pursuit together? Are you 
you know, sitting down every morning and writing 10 emails to people in the network. I think it would look different and we would try to figure out what were people doing that seemed to be most influential and how can we get more people to do more of it? Gotcha. Thank you. Well, anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and talk about some of your favorite things? Sure. Yeah. I talked a little bit earlier about interesting trends that we saw in our kind of global survey and in those results. We had a really, from this very, very diverse 2000 respondents, we had a very interesting thing pop up. And again, it was the sort of thing that we'd known intuitively through many years of working with organizations of different sizes and different maturity levels and industries. We walk into an organization and we ask the leaders how the culture is and they very often have lots of positive things to say about it. And then when we go further down into the weeds, into middle management, into the front line, it is definitely a different story. And a lot of times kind of like that's where the truth lies. That sounds kind of obvious, but our our survey data popped that out so baldly. When we asked the question, do senior leaders have culture as an important topic on their agenda? If you responded to that in our survey and you identified yourself as a senior leader, you were 71% likely to agree versus only 48% of people who did not identify themselves as being part of the leadership team. And we were like, wow, you know, that's remarkable. Like that tendency to view culture more cynically further down in the organization is almost like almost a universal based on our data. And we thought that was really cool. Well, thank you. And now could you share with us a favorite quote so that you find inspiring? You'll like this as a podcast host. From the podcast Story Core, I really like the quote, listening is an act of love. Yes, thank you. And how about a favorite study or experiment or a bit of research? I wish I could remember the author right now, but I read an article recently in HBR that was about how we like to believe that open office spaces make people behave in ways that are more collaborative, right? A huge amount of real estate dollars have been spent on that concept kind of in the past 30 years, right? But a guy did a study, an HBR professor did a study using people's Fitbits to track, there was a major change in an office layout, and they tracked by Fitbits before and after how much people got up and walked around and talked to their colleagues. And the open office space, paradoxically, made people stay at their desks more. Well, is that because you can just talk to someone without moving? Yeah, or you slightly getting so sick of people that you've got your headphones on. Or <laughs> I loved that point just in the sense of like, what we think in a top-down way is going to cause a certain behavior is not necessarily what's going to happen. And if those leaders had interviewed everybody about like what really would drive collaboration, they might not have started with real estate. Excellent. Thank you. And how about a favorite book? I love a book called Everybody Lies. It is about Google search data came out this year. And it's basically about how indirect the ways that people query in Google forms a sort of more accurate record of predictor of how they'll behave than kind of direct surveys. (laughs) I'm getting at really, really interested and feel like the next frontier of culture work has to do around how do you measure behavior, not by asking people are you going to behave this way? But really by indirect forms. Yeah. 
Yeah. Can you give us an example of one way we lie? The great example from the book was around, it's, it's a really obvious one, but um, if you asked people, are you going to vote in an election mm-hmm. versus if you found out how many people queried the location of their polling site, that second query almost entirely correlated to how many people voted in a certain district versus the question the day before, are you going to vote? I was obviously a lot more aspirational. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good one, right? Yeah, very good. Thank you. Yeah, I use that a lot just in talking to leaders about in order to get at culture, you always have to go at it slant. You know, you have to Mm -hmm. kind of think about what motivates people and what they're truly going to do. Right. And how about a favorite tool so that helps you be awesome at your job? That's such a good question. I'm going to say something surprisingly old-fashioned. I can't survive without a notebook next to me at all times. And a favorite habit? I travel with a yoga mat. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> I won't get on an airplane without my folding yoga mat in my bag. And I think it's a good sort of self-reinforcing one. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and, and resonate with folks? You hear them sort of repeating it back to you frequently? I think it would probably be about how most leaders wildly overestimate how rational people are. Well, that's resonating with me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> rational in the sense of, of doing what is in their best interest or doing what is logical or, or what do you mean by rational? Yeah. And I've taken this very much for many years of working with John Katzenbach, like the emotional drivers of how an organization behaves are, I'm not going to say more powerful than the rational ones, but so easy to ignore. And that really understanding the people's pride in their work, people's sense of disenchantment when things feel incoherent, you know, people's motivation to work with someone who makes them feel good about the work that they do. Like that those are really powerful reservoirs of energy, but that it is much, much easier and tempting for most leaders to really focus on the rational reasons and then be utterly baffled why things don't line up like that. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? I would point them to the website for the book. It's thecriticalfewbook.com. And that will also point them to the Katzenbeck Center on the Katzenbeck Center at PwC. Was There's a link through to that. You can also follow me on Twitter. I'm at G. Brooks Anderson. And you can find our book on Amazon. Do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? I feel like in the many years I've been doing this kind of work, I both realized through my own personal experience, as well as watching organizations work, I think you need to really pay attention to what gives you the most energy. You need to think about what are the situations in which I feel motivated. Just try to find yourself in them more often. I feel like so many people spend their careers and lives kind of beating themselves up for not feeling that motivation. And it's the quieting down and saying, what do I feel energy around that usually leads you to the question that you and you alone were meant to solve? Lovely. Thank you. Well, Gretchen, this has been fun. Uh, Thanks and, and good luck with all you're doing there. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. I really appreciate the time. I really appreciated how Gretchen provided that quotation. That's easier to act your way into thinking than it is to think your way into acting. And I think I have found that to be the case in terms of, I disagree with this thing, but okay, I guess I'm going to give it a shot. And I do it a few times over. And it's like, you know, sure enough, this was brilliant. I didn't even know it until I tried it. And I think that could be even more helpful in the context of a cultural shift when we've got those critical few emotionally wise 
influencers working their magic and having folks just give it a try, you know, try the action and, and see how that unfolds. So good stuff from Gretchen. Hope you dug that and more. The show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F414. If you haven't already, I encourage you to push the subscribe button right away. You'll be sure to catch folks like our next guest. It's Brad Stolberg. He is back. We talked about peak performance last time. Now we're talking about passion. Follow your passion. Do you not follow your passion? What's up with balance and passion not really being compatible? How do we live and optimize that? Great research wisdom from Brad. Hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.